0: Summer's closer than you think so are Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot with up to 40% off appliance special buys like an LG mega capacity top load washer and electric dryer for just 598 each. And that'll save loads. But hurry, just like summer they'll be gone before you know it. today is the day for do it with Memorial Day savings now at the Home Depot. more saving more do it US only Waspaz last gas dryer extra C store for details valid through June 5th.
1: Napa At Napa Auto Care Centers, you'll get a $75 prepaid Visa card when you spend $250 on Napa brake parts, which is cause to celebrate. Because normally the sound of screeching brakes means your bank account's about to take a hit. But getting $75 back makes that hit not so bad. Quality parts installed by the pros. That's Napa know-how. Napa
0: know-how.
1: At participating Napa Auto Care Centers. Exclusions apply. Offer ends six thirty nineteen
0: and do my thing i want to get into it man
2: you know like i you know i'm the man don't you can i count it off one two three four you're listening to the church politics podcast with michael ware and justin Gibbony, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a christian worldview transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square
1: This is the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibney, brought to you by the Am Campaign. Uh, Justin, good to be with you. Good to be with you as well, brother. Um,
2: You know, we had another eventful political week, but it was also a week that came with quite a bit of sadness. And so I'm sure we'll be getting into that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and let's just dive dive in this week. Uh, On Friday, a shooter walked into Christchurch's Al Noor Mosque and killed 42 people um, during prayer, went to the Linwood Mosque, killed uh, seven. As always, and, and folks who have been listening to the podcast will know that we, we try to be pretty careful in situations uh, like this while police and authorities are collecting information. And as um, we're getting a clearer picture of Everything that was involved, uh, I, I think it's uh, appropriate to to say and conclude that this obviously was an attack on Muslim worshipers at a time when their their guard is down. I, I've had the opportunity to be in several mosques during uh, around this time, and shoes are off and collected in the you know usually in the hallways or, or cubbies. Uh, you know, it's just a really uh, poignant time for Muslims and just to think of the horror of a, a shooter walking in with high-powered weapons and you know violating the uh, sacredness of that of that time is heartbreaking to think about J- justin let, let, let's talk first about you, you know I think there's uh, one interesting thing was, You know how quickly uh, New Zealand's authorities, uh, in particular their their PM, said that it was time for new gun laws in New Zealand, and uh, how quickly there was sort of a political response in New Zealand. And then, of course, we have this this conversation about white nationalism, which was invoked in the shooter's letter and Islamophobia. So, so this is you know one of those things that's tied up in. A whole bunch of political uh, and societal threads. How, how have you been reflecting on uh, and thinking about this this tragedy over the weekend?
2: Yeah, I think the first thing, you know this you know this is looking very much like a white nationalist terrorist attack, and so we want to be clear on that. And and maybe the facts will change, but it looks to be the case um, because all of this happened, I believe, on Facebook Live, if I'm not mistaken, that it was part of it, or at least part of it was shown there. And I'll start by saying, you know, our thoughts and prayers go out to those who lost loved ones in New Zealand, uh, the city of Church Christ terrorist attack. Uh, And I know that's a much maligned statement, uh, but I'll continue to use it and couple it with actions and and messaging that seek to prevent these events from happening. But it is important to understand that prayers, the prayers of God's children are not exercises in futility. They're not just words, Um, but they also shouldn't be used as a cop out for not taking action. Um, works are the fruit of faith. Uh, so keep praying and keep setting a plan of action to deal with these. And so that's what I've been really, you know, kind of thinking over with with all the commentary that's come out about uh, this terrorist attack. It is another sad attack that's rooted in hatred. You know, apparently this 28 year old man who did it called himself a ethno-nationalist, eco-fascist. And in, in his manifesto, I guess he said something about You know, Trump being a symbol of renewed white identity and common purpose Um, and three Muslim lawmakers in the House have asked Trump uh, to make a statement in support of the Muslim community right now. And I think that's something he should do. I think that should be a no brainer. I'm not quite satisfied with his uh, response so far. Uh, Not at all, actually. Uh, When he was asked about white nationalist terrorism around the world, he kind of downplayed it and said that he didn't believe it was a growing global problem, uh, just that it was a few people on the internet or whatever. Um, you know, some have pointed out to a connection between Trump's rhetoric, his policy regarding immigrants and this act. And, and, and while I think the president needs to do better, uh, we should be very clear that only the shooter is responsible for these deaths. Um, we all should go out of our way to combat, combat religious bigotry, to hold our president and others accountable for their rhetoric and things of that nature. But the shooter is responsible at the end of the day. And so I think playing on it is important. I think looking around us and seeing what policies and, and what type of messages we should uh, promote and what we should avoid is all part of kind of changing the discourse to make sure that it's very well understood that this should never happen. And I think most people understand that. And and unfortunately there are those who some part of their brokenness takes them to this point, And it's unfortunate. It's sad. And we should all be praying about it.
1: Yeah. Th- th- those are good words. It's, uh, it, th- this, this has been, you know, I don't think this is the central thing here, how, how the American president reacts to something in New Zealand. But almost that itself, you know, we're in a position where we're trying to downplay, <laughs> you know, the, the president's reaction, <laughs> uh, because we, we, we don't have a president who would say the words and provide the support that any president, Republican or Democratic, would have done before him. It's it's troubling.
2: And the reason I bring it up is because, you know, that's a reflection on us, right? That may be the first thing that people see when they when they see how the most powerful man in the world responded to it. And so I think it's to your point, it may not be the number one uh, issue, but it certainly speaks, says something to a situation when that's that's kind of the. Uh, lackluster response.
1: Well, absolutely, and, and it's just another facet of the moral role of the presidency. That the presidency isn't just an executive job. It isn't just uh, uh, you know handling bureaucracy. That you want you want a president. That will represent you well. <laughs> you, you want a president. Uh, you want a president that reflects the best of the American people. It's not just a functional role. Yeah, th- this is going to be the person who represents the American people to the rest of the world. That's important. We'll we'll continue to pray for people of New Zealand, especially for uh, Muslim communities in New Zealand, as they. Worship uh, in in the midst of this, and and go about their religious practice in you know, understandably, uh, uh, an environment that that is now full of fear and sort of the question of whether there will be a next tragedy. J- Justin, you touched on something in your comments about kind of who's to blame, and and just kind of quickly wanted to touch on this this interesting encounter with with Chelsea Clinton at NYU. So for those who don't know. Chelsea Clinton has been very involved in n y u she's actually led interfaith work out of n y u s campus for years she's specifically known on campus for the work that she's done to bring people together across religious divides. She was confronted by primarily one one Muslim student, and then my sense is that others sort of gathered uh other students gathered who basically suggested that it was Chelsea's rhetoric regarding Omar which we discussed on last week's episode so if folks want to want to hear more about Rep Ilhan Omar from Minnesota and what many believe to be anti-semitic remarks you can you can listen to uh, the previous episode uh, but this, this protester basically said that by calling out the the congresswoman for anti-semitic remarks Um, which obviously this protester didn't believe were anti-Semitic, Chelsea contributed to a a sort of Islamophobic environment. I'll just say it took me a while to watch the video. I had heard about the video for, you know, maybe maybe 24, 36 hours. And and by the time I I actually went to watch it, by, by the way people were talking about it, I was expecting there to be for it to be kind of a scary situation, I was expecting for there to be a lot of yelling and for it to be a really uncivil sort of scene. I have to say, I found the the activist, the protester, the student to be quite civil. Uh, I don't know if Chelsea has said anything about the incident, but but w- watching it, I, I didn't. I, I couldn't tell from the video. I couldn't get from the video uh, a, a sense of physical intimidation. It was a place where. You know Chelsea has been comfortable. It's NYU. It's it's kind of her campus, um, and and it's obviously the students' campus too. Uh, Chelsea is a is a public figure, and and public figures can can be asked questions. Uh, I, I I didn't find it to be an uncivil scene. I found the argument to be a, a little ridiculous, but you know it's it's interesting. Uh, it, it seems like we're we're easier to jump to the uncivil route or to say that. You know, to go immediately to, you know, identity politics and the power dynamics between Chelsea Clinton and uh, the student and, you know, who is Chelsea married to and and what kind of, you know, identity ties can we find when actually the best response might be to say this is a, this is a silly argument <laughs> that Chelsea, Chelsea Clinton. Commenting on an American political scene is not to blame for uh, for someone in New Zealand committing a terrorist act. Uh, so, so that was, you know, like bad arguments are not uncivil arguments. <laughs> uh, what, what did you think is this this scene played out? And especially, you know, again, the scene wasn't very monumental to me. What, what was more is, you know, the social media sort of reaction that that played out after it. Yeah,
2: I think if we look at the context. So for one, uh, we're at a vigil. There is a conversation. I don't think the conversation as far as the tone was all that bad. The substance of it was pretty bad. Yes, you had a bad argument, but you also had an accusation that was pretty far out. Right. Um, and, and, and it just happened to be recorded. Right. So you make sure that you get this interaction recorded, uh, which, which says something else about maybe the intent of it. But I, but I thought it was somewhat inappropriate, not necessarily in tone, but just in context of how all went down. I mean, to even suggest that somebody's for doing what Chelsea Clinton did, that she's to blame for the attack. I mean, for for people dying, I thought was a bit much. Um, I, I don't think it's productive. Uh, I think it's. I thought it was a nonsense argument, like you pointed out, and and we have to understand that disagreeing with someone, because basically what Chelsea Kip- Clinton did was disagree with Omar, and disagreeing with someone or even a whole group civilly does not equal inciting violence, uh, even when it's a, about a life or death matter. Most of the, a lot of the issues we deal with, and the ones we're most passionate about, are life or death matters. That doesn't mean the person that disagrees with you is inciting violence. And I think with well, the new left, because apparently they're saying this, she had um, a Bernie Sanders shirt on. And just from her rhetoric, you could kind of tell it was a new left perspective. But the new left, um, and that may have been coined by by <laughs> Biden, but we'll talk about that later. Uh, the new left needs to cut it out, though. I mean, and I talked about this already this year. The whole if you disagree with us, your opinion kills people is an intellectually dishonest and manipulative rhetorical device that does nothing to solve the matter at hand. The way this young lady addressed Chelsea Clinton in no way helped solve anything. Um, She was, you know, she didn't talk to, she wasn't yelling at her. She wasn't threatening to, to, you know, any type of physical violence. But when you, when you reduce a conversation into, Hey, you said this, therefore you're to blame uh, for something that happened in New Zealand because you caused Islamophobia It just was a terrible argument. And at a vigil. And the fact that you had to record it says, you know, it it may be on the edge of being civil, but I don't know that it was appropriate or or helpful in any way to the conversation. So uh, I I do like that perspective because I do think uh, what you said is, is important because a lot of people were making it maybe more than it was. But within context, it it probably could have been handled a lot better and and surely in a more
1: constructive way. Yeah, I think you're you're exactly right. We need to dismiss bad arguments. Certainly the fact it was a, a vigil and that Chelsea could have been given the benefit of the doubt that she was, she was mourning just like everybody else there. Yeah, it's a, it's a bad argument. We need to start getting comfortable again, calling bad arguments what they are, no matter what sort of pretense or sort of justification is wrapped up around them. You know, a bad argument is a, is a bad argument, and it's got to be okay to say that. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. This is the Church Politics Podcast.
2: And we are back. This is the church politics podcast. And, you know, Michael, there's been more and more talk about whether or not big tech companies are violating antitrust laws or at least the very least the spirit of these laws. In other words, people are asking, you know, are Facebook, Google and Amazon monopolies? Are they controlling the market to the point where they are completely eliminating competition? Uh, and as we know it, we should know historically that is a bad thing. Um, and just for some history, just some some historical background, the first antitrust legislation was the Sherman Act, which was passed in uh, 1890. And, it w- and the object of the legislation was to preserve free and unfettered competition as a rule of trade, because before this act, it had not necessarily been a rule of trade that you want competition and you want to preserve that freedom. This was necessary at the time to break up the big trusts of the 1800s. So like uh, Standard Oil, U.S. uh, Steel, all these or all these companies were so big and had monopolies, again, meaning they controlled the entire industry. And consequently, they could raise prices as high as they wanted to and do a lot of other things, you know, labor practices, all these issues which were bad for Americans and really just bad for the country's economy. So you had guys like President Theodore Roosevelt and some of the other folks back in this, what was called the progressive era, say, hey, we need to break up these trusts because while they may be very profitable for the few folks that have these big trusts, they're hurting America as a whole. And so we saw the start of those breaking up with the Sherman Act, and then there was other antitrust legislation that has come on since then. Now, the reason we bring it up is because Elizabeth Warren thinks big tech has too much control over American economy and over American democracy. And so she believes that they should face the same type of scrutiny and regulation as the trust did in the 1800s. She put out a, a proposal that basically prescribes breaking up these companies and placing very serious regulations on them. Now, this was something that the Obama administration you know, chose not to do. I think they saw uh, tech in a different light. Uh, But that light is changing a little bit. Um, You know, we see Facebook uh, has not helped their case at all. Uh, On several occasions, they've gotten caught violating uh, privacy and then giving that old Urkel. Did I do that response and kind of still moving forward with what they were doing? You got Twitter where they've been accused of bias and, and the list goes on and on. So people are changing how they're looking at big tech. And so you may see some regulations. You may see some antitrust trust conversations that you hadn't seen before. Michael, what are, what are your thoughts?
0: Hi, welcome to the Subway ad for $2.99 subs. How would you like it? Uh, I'll take Drill Sergeant, please. You got it. All right, now listen up. I want each and every one of you to drop and give me a six-inch meatball marinara, cold-cut combo, veggie delight, four black forest ham on your choice of bread with any veggies you want for just 2 dollars each. Sir, yes, sir. Subway... Make it what you want at participating restaurants. Additional charge for extras plus applicable tax. No additional discounts or coupons may be applied. The Home Depot is making it easy to turn your favorite moment into the perfect color for any room with the Project Color app. Upload any image, then discover the colors and paint to match. Now you're a swipe and a click closer to everything you need for your next project. Explore the most popular colors and trending palettes to find your perfect paint. Get a colorful new experience with the Project Color app, then shop our best brands with gallons starting from just $25.97 at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. U.S. only C-Store for details.
2: On
1: this, because this is an evolving kind of conversation. Well, first I want to say props to Elizabeth Warren. I mean, you you can uh, agree or disagree with uh, what she talks about. She's a very, um, you know, she, she has a, Ideology. She has a view of the way the world works, and it's defined, and it's something that uh, offers you know a stark you know object in the political debate that you can agree or disagree with. But we we talk a lot on this show about the fact that politics should be about a policy and people's lives, not sort of gamesmanship. And she has run one of the most aggressively policy focused presidential campaign so far that that I can remember and, and we we ought to applaud her for actually putting out Clear ideas into the democratic primary, so that so that we we can actually have a debate about ideas, not just personalities and and profiles and and all of that. So uh, I want to just acknowledge, you know, this isn't the first policy rollout that Warren has had. You know, this early in the campaign, she's been rolling that rolling out. It seems a a policy piece every week, including on housing, including on sort of family economics. So uh, you know, that's worth noting on this issue. What most intrigues me is the attention that Warren's plan gives to third party data cells and the fact it would limit the ability of these sort of digital behemoths from sharing third party data in a way that would obviously override you know the the privacy agreements that that these companies put out on their own accord and i think not just because of what we've seen in the political realm but because of what how how we've seen this data used to invade the personal lives of consumers of citizens the way that we've seen data be used to you know, make up these very complicated, frankly intrusive, you know, profiles of American consumers so that they could be targeted with with different products. Uh, I think that's attractive to a lot of people. I, I think it deserves a policy debate whether the whether the government uh, has the right and the prerogative. And uh, whether it's best for the government to step in to make sure, uh, make sure that these these companies can't use our own data to benefit themselves. Now there there are a lot of details about how that will have to work out, and what what's the what's the limit? Is it only companies of a certain size that can't do third party data, and then what does that say about smaller? But um, but but I think that's a debate uh, we need to have. And then you know you're you're right, Justin. Uh, the Sort of antitrust legislation has always evolved with the economic transformations, and we have yet to have antitrust legislation catch up with the digital era. So it's a, it's a conversation that needs to be had. Uh, there certainly needs to be some political response to the, the sort of relative powerlessness of of consumers to protect themselves against these behemoths when Facebook also owns Instagram and WhatsApp, you know, th- th- there, there are some real concerns there that they're, um, you know, controlling a large percentage of American thought. You know, this isn't just about controlling you know steel or controlling you know big tobacco. Having you know seventy percent of the tobacco industry, this is American ideas and 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 the thought life of Americans in many ways. And uh, and so I, I'm. Frankly, just grateful that Elizabeth Warren rolled this out. I'm looking, hopefully, we'll be able to get an actual debate on these issues and not just a whole bunch of, you know, anti who can be harder on big business kind of stuff. There's real meat here. This is substantive policy from Elizabeth Warren.
2: It, it certainly is. And you, you hit it on the head. This is deserving of a debate, a real debate. And you may find that there are Republicans that are that are eager to hear this and have this conversation as well. So it could be something that is bipartisan to some extent. Uh, and and just and just uh, for the sake of giving both sides of the debate, one of the responses to this would be probably from big tech is to say, well, when it comes to Facebook and Twitter, you know, we're free. Right. So uh, Google, we're free. So, you it, you know, it's hard to regulate us like you would regulate a utility company because people don't have to use us. I think the argument would say, well, you're free in a sense. But if you're using people's uh, information, then it does come at some expense, right? Even though it may not be in the same way as a utility company. So just so you guys know that there are kind of, you know, there's another side to that argument. And, and I would encourage everybody to kind of look those two sides up because this needs to be a debate. But you stole my thunder, Michael, to be honest. Uh, I, I wanted to to kind of give a shout out to uh, Elizabeth Warren for what she's doing. You know, while too many of the folks in the Democratic primary field are jumping on every half-cocked issue that pops up on. Twitter and kind of depending on their identities and their good looks, Warren is presenting policy. Now, I haven't agreed with all the policy, but that's not what this is about. Um, I I think that some of the other folks need to be more policy oriented. Uh, This is not an endorsement, but it is a shout out. Uh, We want to incentivize policy oriented campaigns, and we just haven't seen that from everybody. Her and a couple other folks who are running look like serious candidates who are being surrounded by some folks who are just nakedly ambitious and who, you know, to use my favorite quote from from the Game of Thrones, look like they would see this country burn if they could be the king of the ashes. Now, that's that's obviously hyperbole. But some of the issues that this group is jumping on show a lack of seriousness. Uh, they show it shows a lack of concern for the people. You don't just jump on an issue because there's a group on Facebook who wants, you know, who are pushing to do it. Um, you you see this pandering, this let them eat cake attitude that, quite frankly, is very scary at times. And so shout out to 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 Warren. She needs to get props for talking about policy, putting up policy. When somebody gets on Twitter when somebody makes a statement like, yeah, I, I support this or I support that. Don't take that. You know, don't 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 give that too much credence, because at the end of the day, what does that mean? How are you going to f- pay for it? What does it look like? That's what policy papers are for. And that's what Warren and a few others are putting out. And that's what we should be, you know. We should forget the forget the tweets. That's what we should really be uh, pushing.
1: Yeah. yeah, absolutely. That's that's a good word. And as this debate plays out, you know, I think this might be an issue worth having, you know, a, a guest or two on to um, to walk us through the the various arguments. Uh, you know, like like you said, Justin, there's certainly you know a robust strain in American politics uh, that suggests that. If companies can build something, they ought to have the freedom to do so, and there's there's good reason for that. Uh, you know, this gets back to the conversation we had, gosh, maybe a month month and a half ago. Now and it's hard to keep track of time on on Amazon. You know, the the value that Amazon would have brought to New York that would have benefited a lot of a lot of people, but also you know some of the burden that comes comes with that. And this is this is another one of those uh, one of those scenarios that involves. Tradeoffs. I guess that'll be the last thing I say, which is it's important in these debates for us not to pretend that there aren't trade-offs. <laughs> that that legislation that limits the ability of these companies to just grow and take up more of their of their market uh won't won't have some downsides to it, but but that's the exact debate we need to have.
2: <laughs> yeah. And 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 let's be honest, when we talk about this and we talk about the Sherman Act and antitrust, you can't overregulate. And when you overregulate, you actually hurt the people, too. So these are conversations we need to have, but not thinking, hey, regulation, any regulation is always good. Deregulation is, is always good. That's brain dead politics. Let's take a look at the policy, look closely, think it through and do what's best
1: for for the people. Hey. That was a fun, fun conversation. When we get back, uh, we're going to talk about lowering the voting age, which has become a topic of debate after uh, (laughs) after uh, some, some important people have been asked the question. All right. We'll be back. This is a church politics podcast. We're back. This is the Church Politics podcast, uh, and, and, and Justin, uh, like I said before the break, you know Speaker Pelosi was asked about lowering the voting age to sixteen. She said she supported it. Uh, Oregon is looking at legislation to to do the same thing, uh, and you know a Democratic primary is an interesting time to uh, be bringing up this this conversation. So, so what do you what do you think, Justin? Should we lower the voting age to sixteen?
2: Man, stop! <laughs> Just stop. Let's let's be serious. Um, you know, uh, Representative Ayanna Presley released a, a a legislative proposal. What you're getting at that would lower the A's, uh to 16 in federal elections. Uh, it was quickly defeated by a bipartisan majority. From what I read, it was only 30 percent of the House voted for it, but 30 percent is probably too much uh, to my uh, for my liking. Um, and I like I like Representative Presley. What I what I've seen from her and and the statements that she's made. But this is just a, a bad idea. Simple and plain. Uh it reeks of partisan self-interest at the expense of the country. Uh don't, you know, please do not allow this to trivialize other voter voter rights issues that we probably could be paying more attention to. Nancy Pelosi, I guess I was somewhat a surprise until I did a little bit of research. She said that she supported it, that it would be a boon to voter engagement, which I'm not sure it's good if you're if it's only adding uninformed participation. Uh, So that's not necessarily a a plus. Uh, And and I want to be clear, this isn't just a beat up on 16 year olds. There are some responsible 16 year olds out there that are taking care of responsibilities that are beyond their age. No doubt about it. We love them. We should be supporting them in, in any way we can. But for the most part. Uh, 16 year olds are probably not ready to be voting in, in these elections. You know, when they're not on punishment, uh, 16 year olds tend to be pretty liberal, if not libertarian on social issues, I think. And uh, uh, especially when it means getting their way. And so that could have something to do with the Democratic Party uh, uh, pushing this forward. But m- my comment is let's let's let them get through civics class first uh, and then have a conversation about this. This measure was also put out there uh, to lower the voting age. And it was defeated on a a ballot in San Francisco in 2016. So I think you have a while before uh, this becomes something that the country is okay with. But I think most parents uh, and folks who are close to 16 year olds, we love them to death, but don't think they're quite ready to be voting on these serious issues.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, so let's, let's have a little, I I think I'm, I'm in agreement with you, particularly um, because of the, the political implications of this, I think there are more core voting rights that are under attack and core uh, sort of access to the ballot that needs to be expanded. And this sort of seems to seems to me to be sort of uh, really muddies the waters. It, it really makes it uh, so that it seems like All voting rights are uh, sort of a partisan ploy as opposed to guaranteeing, you know, a a core civic function. And so I I agree with you there. But but let's have fun with sort of some people would say, and, you know, I, I think both of us would obviously agree there are a lot of folks over 18 that aren't ready to, vote. <laughs> you know, there, there are a lot of folks who, who don't have a civic education. I mean, we see the polls only, you know, a certain low percentage can name, you know, one of the, the first 10 amendments can only name one branch of the legislature uh, can only name, you know, a certain small percentage can only name, you know, who is the current vice president of the United States. Uh, and so there are some who would say, you know, a 16 year old who's in the middle of school who, you know, is is having to like consume news you know, in their government class.
2: A 16-year-old has to consume news?
1: Well, I think a lot more than a lot of adults. Um, you know, at least these kids are right, like in class, uh, you know, having to. Yeah, I think when I was in high school, we had, you know, teachers would bring up current events things and we'd have to present on certain issues. <laughs> how, how,
2: <laughs> I'm, listen, I'm listening. I'm listening.
1: Yeah. Okay. All right. So so, so, th- so that, that'll be one piece. And then I do think that there's some merit to the argument that if you get, if you get them young, then they'll build up the sort of civic muscles to engage in politics throughout their life. That uh, if if you're able to cultivate a sense of civic duty and responsibility, uh, and obviously there are other ways to do that other than lowering the voting age, but, but that is one way. You allow a 16-year-old to vote and it's this new thing. Maybe it's a right that they cherish more. As they move on, and then obviously the third piece of this is obviously building on you know the, the March for Our Lives, you know the young gun activists. We saw this past week Sweden or uh, this young climate change activist that led this global, you know that's a whole other thing, uh, but but led this global walk out of, of classrooms around climate change. So I, I think that this very much is trying to tack on to some of the young activism that we're seeing. So uh, all, all to say. I don't support lowering the voting age to 16 right now, but it's not I hear some arguments against it from some folks that uh, <laughs> th- that I don't necessarily buy. I mean, I go home you know, to Buffalo and talk with po- folks about politics and, uh, you know, you-, you got people not vaccinating their kids. You got, you know, you got a whole bunch of
2: stuff. <laughs> but But here's my thing. Here's my thing. Number one, it just sounds like a costly experiment. A very, a very costly experiment. Yeah, maybe all that stuff is true. But those same folks who were uninformed that you went and talked to that were adults were 16 year olds at a time. And we're probably, and we're probably less informed at, at that time. Right. So, so I think we do have to consider that. Um, as you said, voting is not the only way to get people involved. So I'm all for civics and the AND campaign wants to get young people involved, understanding it, learning more about it. But that experiment is, is a little too costly for me. I, I think people are assuming, and I think it's fair to say that there is some wisdom that comes with age. Some. And it's all relative sure. to the person. Absolutely. But, Absolutely. If, but if I'm irresponsible at uh, 21, 41, I probably may have been a little worse at 16. Yeah. So I, <laughs> I, I think that's what some people are getting at. And I'll be honest with proposals <laughs> like this kind of scare me. Like, are we serious? I mean, do we want to be taken seriously? You know, in these conversations, because that is that. I mean, it would obviously change the whole landscape, right? Right. It would um, change. Yeah, it would change a lot. But is it for the better? And and so that's what that's why you know this stuff. I think we need to very quickly dispose of it. I don't think that was responsible of Pelosi. I think it is very partisan and and just irresponsible. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I was literally just about to propose that we, uh, once this episode goes up, we'll put a poll up on on Twitter. But you just said to quickly dispose of it. So I don't know. We'll have to discuss that. We'll, we'll have to discuss that offline. But either way, we do want to hear from folks. This is such an interesting topic to me. It, it brings in so, so much. So we'd love to hear from you about this issue and obviously anything else we've discussed uh, on this show. We have one more topic we're going to get to after. After the break, this is the Church Politics Podcast. We're back at the Church Politics Podcast. And Justin, uh, before we wrap up this episode, we did want to touch on this Uh, Article from Peter Beinart at The Atlantic with the headline, secular Democrats are the new normal. Uh, Instead of invoking God, Beto O'Rourke and most other Democratic contenders identify religion as a source of division. You know, I I think it's right uh, in one way and wrong in another. It's wrong in that it uses uh, as its benchmark for sort of judging this thing, the announcement speeches. Uh, So. Uh, For instance, uh, you know, for Beto, uh, the whole lead into the article is that Beto didn't mention God in his three minute announcement video. Feinart goes on to mention that none of the other major white progressive candidates, and I'm quoting here, and it's really significant that he clarifies down the piece that he's primarily talking about white progressive candidates. Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, or Kirsten Gillibrand, none of them invoked God in their presidential announcements either. And then he goes on to note that Amy Klobuchar did, goes on to note that Cory Booker has invoked God on the trail, Kamala Harris invoked God. And so, you know, I I, I just think this frame, I think is, is uh, helpful when we're thinking particularly about white progressives in the party but even there look at elizabeth warren in the cnn town hall she's quoting scripture uh she taught sunday school bernie sanders went to liberty university and even though he's not a christian himself uh gave a message about values that come from faith that ought to uh, be able to to unify us and so th- the media is always prepared it seems to declare god is dead in our politics uh, and they're 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 usually wrong on that Uh, the democratic party remains to be about two thirds Christian. Uh, and so, uh, yes, there is a growing sort of religious disaffiliated, religiously disaffiliated segment of the democratic party that's mostly white. Uh, and that's going to have, uh, ramifications, but this idea that secular Democrats are the new normal, I think, I think maybe going too far. What's not going too far is, is Peter's, uh, uh, identification that when Democrats are talking about religion uh, it's often antagonistic. it's often uh, uh, th- there's often a sort of um, an edge to some of these comments even in the Elizabeth Warren Town hall it's you know, my faith didn't teach me you know, fill in the blank the blank is basically to be like a Republican or be like Donald Trump uh, and so you know that th- that's something to watch for. it's not just, you know, are Democrats talking religion, but is religion becoming a a weapon on the left in the same way that's been a weapon on the right for 30, uh, 40 years? Are Democrats only viewing religion uh, as a way to sort of bash their opponent over the head, as a way to uh, cast their opponent as immoral or even un-American which is an interesting thing to watch. But just what did you think of the article and the the narrative that, uh, that uh, uh rolling out here?
2: Yeah, I'm with you. I think it's somewhat overstated um, because you do have people of color who are in the party that are, are, are very much uh, still very religious, but, but at the same time, what we're seeing is that these white secular progressives seem to control the reward and punishment mechanism within the party. And so I'm somewhat conflicted on this because I'm not one to give a whole lot of credence to using religious language, parading around in the trappings of faith without seeing the substance of it in your policy. So if you, if you have, let's say, hypothetically, <laughs> you, you have a, uh, you know, you're running for president and you have your launch event and you talk about, you know, you use scripture and you talk about faith. But then you go back and create a religious test for judges. Yeah. I'm not impressed.
1: Hypothetically. Um, and, it, and it's not. Yeah. yeah hypothetically. hypothetically.
2: <laughs> Yeah. Um, messaging matters, but messaging can always also be manipulative. So I want to see what you what your policy looks like. What are you representing when you're voting and when you're questioning people? And 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 honestly, I think Republicans more so Republican candidates historically have used this uh, a little more faith, a little more as a prop than Democrats have relied on it. Um, and, and at times have not applied the faith to it. You know, you use it as a prop, but you don't actually apply it. Um but at the same time, what I realized, so that's part of the conflict. The other side of it is that I realized this, that this is partially happening because a lot of people are of faith in both parties kind of have decided to entrust their brains and their emotions to the party and are being shepherded and discipled by partisanship and ideology. Uh, and when you do that, uh, the party begins to take you for granted. And so when I see some of the policies, again, that some of these Democratic Primary uh, candidates are putting out there. I see no regard in some instances for the faith community, for those black and brown people and other folks in the faith community uh, that will be voting. I see no regard for it because what you know when you get to a place where where they feel like you know why would they give you real consideration as people of faith when you're going to vote for them because you you just hate the other party, or when you're going to vote for them because just because of their identity? Why do they need to spend time and make sure that it's substantive rather than just the trappings you know, of the faith? So my conclusion on this article, I thought I thought it was still well-written, maybe a little bit overspoken, but this is our fault in, in a lot of ways uh, because there is something to it. There's merit to this. Um, and if we're going to continue to allow kind of the su- secular progressive side to have all the say and just to kind of hold back our convictions just because we want to get back, you know, somebody may want to get back at Republicans or get back at Democrats, then that's our fault. Um, And we, we need to kind of take responsibility for that. You know, I'm not, I'm not sure that candidates have gotten any less religious. I'm not sure. I'm not convinced that they were ever all that religious anyway, many of them, but um, our witness may have weakened um, and because we've leased it out to others. And it seems at times that others are controlling it.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, I'll, I'll just say to the extent that this is about candidates being able to be themselves and not use religious language, if they're not religious... I think that's a positive development, right. yeah. you know. I, I I I don't want you know Bernie Sanders running around talking about you know us being a Christian nation, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, but in previous eras, that you know that that's the kind of thing that that was politically incentivized and, and necessary in some cases. So I, I think that that's a that's a healthy thing. Uh, what would not be healthy is if religious candidates of any religion were, were now disincentivized from being themselves. And so it's about finding that balance. And we'll, you know, it's going to be interesting to see this primary with all of the candidates running, you know, probably the most religiously diverse field that we've had, folks who are Jewish, folks who are uh, Hindu running and Tulsi Gabbard, a variety of sort of Christian expressions, mainline Catholic uh, from the historically black church. We'll see how religion sort of perks up Again, as you said, Justin, not just in rhetoric, but let, let's pay attention to policies here. Let's pay attention to who's showing up up at a church, asking for votes. And then, as you said, Justin, rolling out policies that would affect the very rights of believers in that church to live out their faith. Uh, and so that that's all very important. Yeah, because because
2: Michael, we've had a conversation about religious exclusion that in certain, especially in urban context, you're. People of color and others who are more centered or traditional in their social views are smeared and really, you know, come up against stuff that is trying to keep them out of office that that, you know, there are there's an establishment that's trying to do that. We've talked about it. We've created a video to talk about it. It is real. And so when I think about religious exclusion. I don't want to see you up there, you know, singing, you know, uh, singing Mahalia Jackson. And then, uh, you know, with the other hand, you're doing all other kind of stuff to keep people off the bench or keep them in office. Be real, because I'm not, I'm not going to vote for you just because you, you you know, you uh, recite a scripture. Uh, I want to see what you're really about, how you're helping the people. And, yeah, again, it just has to go to the substance. And Christians have to stand up in a dignified way in the public square, not just representing ourselves, but others and say, here's where the standard lies. <laughs> This is what I'm going for. This is what I'm not going for. If we don't do that, then we almost deserve to be taken for granted.
1: Yeah. Well, Justin, we're uh, at near the end of this episode. Uh, I am interested, though, to see if you have er- any early thoughts on uh, on the Mark Madness bracket. And uh, I mean, other than Duke, other than Duke, <laughs> do, do you have a team that you think has a has an opportunity to make some waves? I think you got to keep your eyes on Michigan State. Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: I think Michigan State's doing some big things. Florida State could, could upset some folks too. You know that ACC is tough. I'm always, you know, I'm always a, a SEC guy. Mm-hmm. Um. And so Tennessee and Kentucky, you got to keep your eye on them. But we'll just have to see. It's, it's still hard to vote against Zion. Yeah. And so Zion, Zion's coming with that business. He he he's a serious dude. So. We'll see if somebody can put a stop to it.
1: Yeah, you know, I'm proud of my University of Buffalo Bulls pulled out a six seed in this tournament. Uh, they were nationally ranked for wow. most of the year. You know, they'll probably end up facing, uh, they have, I think, St. John's or Arizona State playing the play-in. And then they'll play the winner of that. And then they'll have to face Texas Tech, probably the three seed if they... If they make it past the, uh, the the first game, but I'm excited to see them play. You know, I, growing up, I do the UB uh, University of Buffalo basketball camp, used to know the coach and the players. And so it's uh it's fun to see. But college sports aren't that big in Buffalo. To, so to see UB have, have a team that has a real shot again just I, I don't think they're going to the championships I don't I'm, I'm not even sure if they'll make it to the second weekend but but they have a real legitimate chance of making some waves so I'm excited about that
2: and you gotta love that Cinderella story oh, yeah. so let's, let's hope we see somebody come up and cause this you know these are memories folks never forget so I'm looking forward to it
1: man that's why I love doing this podcast with you I mean you, you rag on my bills sometimes but sometimes you you know you'll come around and be supportive I, I'm gonna give you this one brother yeah <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) All right, folks. Hey, uh, I enjoyed this episode. I I hope that you will too, our listeners. Please go to iTunes, leave a review, let us know what you think, let others know about this podcast. And then I'd also encourage you to check out the the cruxandthecall.com. In particular, if you want to stay up to date with what we're reading throughout the week, Check out Today's Essentials on that website where we post articles that you'll need to understand what's happening throughout the week in news and politics. All right, folks, we're just uh, blessed to be able to do this show, blessed to be able to share with you every week. So glad you're a part of this community, and we'll talk to you next week. This is the Church Politics Podcast. Thanks, y'all. God bless. God
0: came out of Nazareth. This is the groove. Tell me, can yeah We're on the job. The Home Depot. More saving, more doing.
1: 30.